This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Chapter 5. We the People, From Vassal to Suzerain to Serf. Quote, Preamble, U.S. Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Quote, Henry Silcominger, 1977. How paradoxical that the first nation to base its political philosophy on the principle that all political authority derives from the people, and that the people express their will through elected representatives, should also be the first to embrace the principle that the ultimate interpretation of the validity of the popular will should be lodged not in the people themselves or in their representatives, but in the one non-elected and therefore non-democratic branch of the government." Warren Burger, who served as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1970s and half of the 1980s, says that, quote, we the people are the Constitution's most important words. On September 26, 1988, he sent me a one-sentence reply when I questioned him about the meaning of his statement, quote, they are the key words conceptually, end quote. This gets right to the point. At the time that I read his reply, I did not fully understand the reason why his statement is correct. I had not yet recognized the extraordinary construction of the preamble. It precisely follows the biblical covenant structure. The 1. Sovereign creating agency, we the people. 2. Acts in history, historical prologue, to establish a union that will 3. Establish justice and ensure the common defense, boundaries, to secure 4. The blessings of liberty for ourselves and 5. Our posterity. When I finally recognized this five-point structure, as I was writing this chapter, I immediately went to my library to get a copy of Meredith G. Klein's The Structure of Biblical Authority. I wanted to be sure I had part two correct, that he, following George Mendenhall, calls the historical prologue. Lo and behold, Klein even uses the word preamble in describing the Ten Commandments section of Exodus 20. Quote, I am the Lord thy God, end quote. The opening words of the second. Sinaitic proclamation in Exodus 20 correspond to the preamble of the suzerainty treaties, which identified the suzerain or great king, and that in terms calculated to inspire awe and fear. There is no historical prologue in the preamble to the Constitution. Why not? Because the Constitution literally was announcing the advent of a new covenantal divinity whose prior existence had no independent legal status in American jurisprudence. The people had been referred to time and again in colonial political theory, but the people had no independent legal status. The Unitarian God of Locke's theory of government and Newton's cosmos had previously always been mentioned in close association with the God of the people. The people had heretofore always been under a God of some kind. This was about to change. This new independently sovereign divinity, the people, would formally announce its advent as a sole covenantal agent of national incorporation by means of public ratification. The people, the preamble states, quote, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America, end quote. The new God of the 
constitution was both suzerain and vassal, something covenantally unique in the history of, of man prior to 1787. The constitution's preamble elevated the people from point two in the covenant structure, representation, to point one, the creator. Warnberger is correct. We the people are the key words conceptually. Covenant, an inescapable concept. The preamble is structured using the five points of the biblical covenant model. The Constitution's five parts, with the preamble as part one of the suzerain, also conform to the biblical five-point covenant model, though not in the same order. Do I think that the Constitution's framers were that self-conscious? Were they the original discoverers of the covenantal insight that was first presented by George Mendenhall in 1954? I think not. Were they operating with the biblical model in the back of their minds? Had they stolen the model from the Puritans? No, because the Puritans never systematically articulated their model of the covenant, although they wrote a great deal about all five points. We can find discussions of all five points scattered throughout their writings, but these discussions are not systematically arranged in the five-point outline. What the framers did do was write a constitution, and a constitution is a covenant document. All covenants must contain or at least deal with the five features of the biblical covenant model. There is no escape. This five-point model is an inescapable concept for every covenant institution. Nevertheless, the fact that the preamble is structured in the same order as the biblical covenant model is remarkable. In adopting this five-point model, the framers were being faithful to something written by God into man's mind and his covenantal institutions. They remained true to their self-assigned calling to create a new national covenant. Authorized by Congress to go to Philadelphia in order to revise and renew the Articles of Confederation, the bylaws of the old National Covenant, they substituted a new covenant with a new God. The preamble was the de new Declaration of Independence, and the remaining four parts of the Constitution served as the Covenant's bylaws. The framers also broke the older state covenants by establishing a new one outside of the oath provisions of most of the original Covenant documents, and against the express intention of the Congress but they could not beat something with nothing. They offered a new covenant in the name of a new sovereign agent, the people. A new declaration of independence. This was the Constitutional Convention's official declaration of independence. Independence from the God of Newton? Unlike the Continental Congress's public declaration of independence from Great Britain in 1776, which implicitly broke covenant with the Trinitarian of God of the Bible, in the name of the Unitarian God of Isaac Newton, which was the only God that Jefferson was willing to tolerate. This brief preamble declaration publicly identified a new, imminent God, the people. Also, unlike the older declaration, this one would have to be ratified in a legally open but well-managed state conventions. The public ratification could not be done by representatives of the, of the legislatures, as the original declaration had been ratified, because, unlike the Continental Congress in 1776, the Convention of 1787 had no independent legal status nationally. National status belonged solely to the existing Congress, whose official subordinate agent the Convention was. The Convention broke covenant with Congress when it broke covenant with the deistic God of the Declaration of Independence. This was the legal meaning of the shift from a halfway national covenant to, a pot, to an apostate national covenant. The voters in state conven conventions then ratified the new deci decision of the Convention. In short, new covenant, new God. The representatives of the people in the state conventions voted to ratify the people's newfound divinity. They voted to ele elevate the people from point two, representative, to point one, suzerain. 
in their legal capacity as representatives of the subordinate colonial people who had, pre who had previously been legal subordinates to the God of Newton, National Covenant, and in most cases, also the God of the Bible, State Covenants. The state conventions declared the corporate people as the sole and exclusive suzerain God of the nation. They forgot the example of Herod. Quote, and Herod was, was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and, having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a, a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of God and not of man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not the glory God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Acts twelve twenty through 23 The worms of humanism have taken longer to do their work, but they have been at their jobs continuously since 1788. From Covenant to Contract the essence of the shift in the framers' thinking is a shift from covenant to contract. This explanation of 18th century political theory is standard in many historical studies. The language of the marketplace was steadily imported into political theory through the concept of the social contract or social covenant. Nevertheless, the co covenantal aspect of civil government cannot legitimately be evaded. Words can change, explanations can change, formal procedures can change, but covenantalism is an inescapable concept. A covenant is a voluntary contract established under God, and it is then sealed by a self-maledictory oath, either implicit or explicit. The parties to this covenant call down God's negative sanctions on themselves should they violate the specified stipulations, laws, of the covenant. A contract, on the other hand, is an agreement between two or more parties for attaining specified objectives, the terms of which are enforced in a court of law. There are no sanctions involved other than those specified by the contract or in the civil law. The motivation of the agreement is personal self-interest or the attainment of some personal goal. God's name is not lawfully invoked in contracts. This is what John Witherspoon forgot in his discussion of oaths and vows. He did not limit use of the oath to the three institutions of church, family, and state. They dis this destroyed the biblical concept of covenantal institutions. The presence of an oath implicitly equalized all other voluntary institutions with the three covenantal institutions, which in the hands of Madison and the other voluntarists and compact theorists led to the secularization of civil government. This shift in language from covenant to contract accelerated on both sides of the Atlantic after the glorious revolution of 1688 and 89. The 18th century world steadily abandoned the earlier view of the civil covenant, government under God. It became popular to speak of a social contract between or among the people as the sovereign initiators. It is, in Wood's phrase, quote, the equation of rulers and ruled, end quote. Charles Bacchus declared in a 1788 sermon, quote, but in America, the people have had an opportunity of forming a compact betwixt themselves from which alone their rulers derive all their authority to govern, end quote. The heart of the judicial apostasy of the modern world is found here, the shift from the formal biblical covenant to a state-enforced contract, so-called. The state, as the highest court of appeal, short of revolution, became the operational sovereign of the civil covenant, since it was no longer formally covenanted under God. As the human agency with the greatest power, the state steadily has asserted jurisdiction over churches and families. Since the state is regarded as beyond earthly appeal, no other human covenant supposedly can be said to have a higher court of appeal than the state. This shift in language, covenant to contract, 
formally unleashed the state from its traditional shackles under God and God's law. Darwinism later completed the process of emancipation from God and deliverance into the bondage of the state. But Darwinism was simply a development in the field of biology of the judicial and covenantal viewpoint of the 17th century Whigs, the philosophers of the voluntary political contract, and the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, the philosophers of the voluntary economic contract. Nevertheless, this shift in language is misleading. There is no escape from covenantalism. Covenants are inescapable concepts. Many attempts have been made over the last three centuries to convert the three covenantal institutions into contractual ones. But the biblical fact is this. Men produce broken covenants when they speak of church, state, and family as merely contractual. Men are self-deceived when they speak this way. There will always be some new sovereign agent under whom these three covenants are ratified and sealed. There will always be a voice of authority who speaks in the name of the recognized sovereign who has authorized a covenant. This was not clear to those who ratified the Constitution. It probably was not clear to those who drafted it, although Madison was very close to the truth. But one thing is clear. The God of the Bible was formally removed from the Constitution. Not even the lingering traces of his name in the the Declaration of Independence were allowed to pass into the Constitution. There was, nevertheless, an incorporating authority, the people. There would, therefore, still be a voice in history of this final trans-historical authority. There have been several claimants for this title, but in the 20th century, one triumph, the Supreme Court. The Voice of Authority We have seen who the official authority is. In order to make the results of their closed-door conspiracy sound more authoritative and legitimate, the conspirators added these three words in the preamble. Quote, we the people. The fact is, the document would be more accurate had it announced, quote, we the states. For it was submitted to statewide conventions that were called by the state's legislatures. But the framers took great care to make certain that voters perceived the Constitution as the work of the people as a whole, even though it was ratified by state-ratifying conventions. The the convention, in drawing up the Constitution, was supposedly acting in the name of the sovereign people, as distinguished from the voters' legislatures, thereby gaining legitimacy for a revolution against the state's established Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation. The framers were determined to gain legitimacy for the, constitu- for the Constitution from a trans-historical sovereign in a one-time event that would be difficult to duplicate. Once the metaphysical people had spoken in the ratifying conventions, they were collectively to go on permanent vacation, just as the textbook God of the Deus was supposed to do. Unlike children, who were to be seen but not heard, the people were to be neither seen nor heard after 1788. Keeping the people in their place in Fiddler on the Roof, a stage play and movie about a Jewish, the Jewish village life in pre-revolutionary Russia, the rabbi of a small village is asked publicly if he has a blessing for the Tsar. The rabbi, a wise man, has an appropriate blessing. May God bless the Tsar. Very far from here. This was essentially the prayer of the nationalists in 1787 regarding the people. The people, as the incorporating God, were to bless the completed works of the framers and then go very far away. The Nationalists had the Bill of Rights forced on them by the Anti-Federalists, but this was the last time any wholesale imposition on the Constitution was to take place. The people were then to sit down and shut up. In acknowledging the original judicial sovereignty of the people, the Constitution greatly augmented the political sovereignty of the nation-state, which is the only incorporated institution in society that has been officially produced by the people as a whole. The framers fully understood that the Constitution's transfer of judicial authority from the people to the national government was a unique act of incorporation, and it would be very difficult to duplicate in the future. They wanted it this way. 
Madison rejected Jefferson's assertion that it is a good idea to go to the people whenever there is any encroachment of one department of government on another. Madison appealed to the power of the people almost as if it were a one-time event. But first he began with the familiar theme of the sovereignty of the people. For, quote, the people are the only legitimate fountain of power, and it is from them that the constitutional charter under which the several branches of government hold their power is derived, end quote. He warned against, quote, the danger of disturbing the public tranquility by an interesting too strongly the public passions, end quote. In short, the expedients are of too ticklish a nature. In short, quote, the expedients are of too ticklish a nature to be unnecessarily multiplied, end quote. Madison was concerned about the evils of paying too much attention to the passions of temporary public opinion. Years later, he distinguished between a, quote, constitutional majority and a, quote, numerical majority of the people. The constitutional minority, even if a majority of the people, has to submit to the constitutional majority until the Constitution could be amended. Nisbet writes, quote, The only remedy, therefore, for the oppressed minority is an amendment of the Constitution or a subversion of the Constitution. This interference is unavoidable, end quote. The act of incorporation was a unique event, unlikely to be repeated, Madison believed. Thus, while voters could reject candidates for public office, it was unlikely that they would reject the Constitution itself. The states could, however, fight a civil war when major disagreements arose, a possibility he prudently declined to discuss. Thus, the new national government was virtually secure, short of a civil war or invasion. Its very judicial security transferred unprecedented political sovereignty to the national government. A New Theory of Constitutions Madison's view of the future represented a break with the Whig theory of the origin and fate of constitutions. The Whigs, in turning to classical political models, were drawn into the classical world's cyclical theory of history. Cyclical history has been rediscovered by the Enlightenment humanists of 18th century America, and it had become widespread. The Whigs believed, as the Greeks had, that new orders inevitably decline. Hesiod said in the Works and Days, 8th century BC, that the original age of gold degenerated into silver, then into bronze, then into the age of the heroes, and finally into iron. Society, the classical world believed, needs periodic revolutions to restore new orders. This idea became common in Whig political philosophy. Jefferson had reworked Tertullian's comments that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, turning it into the blood of the patriots and tyrants, refreshing the tree of liberty every twenty years, a classical, cyclical concept of development. This perspective is reflected in the Virginia Constitution of 1776, which authorized the judicial principle that, quote, a majority of the community hath an indubitable, inalienable, and indefeasible right to reform, alter, or abolish it, the government, in such manner as shall be judged most conducive to the public weal, end quote. By 1787, the framers preferred to avoid such rhetoric. They wanted linear history, not cyclical. They hoped that the constitutional balance would give them this providential fruit of Christianity. But without the theological or covenantal root, the Federalists had cried crisis in 1787, even as the Whigs of 1688 had done. And like the victorious Whigs of 1688, thereafter they wanted consolidation, stability, and continuity. They wanted the orderly constitutional transfer of power and liberty to their posterity. They became court Whigs once they had created the new national court. This permanent transfer of political sovereignty to the national state was not obvious at first, even to the framers. 
The political boundaries were vague, as it is testified to by Madison and Jefferson's Virginia and Kentucky resolves in 1798 and 1799, written to protest the Federalist Party's Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Furthermore, it was not always clear just how the people had revealed themselves judicially in 1788, as a unit, or through each state, or through the states as a whole, as Madison later put it. One man saw the constitutional implications of what was being proposed by the Federalists in 1788, Patrick Henry. His protest was not sufficiently persuasive at Virginia's ratification convention, but in retrospect, he seems prophetic. Patrick Henry, by whose authority? Patrick Henry had been invited to the Philadelphia Convention, but he had refused. A year later, he spoke out against ratification. He had seen the meaning of we the people, and he warned against its implications during the debates over ratification. I quoted his statement at length at the beginning of this chapter. It bears repeating. Quote, Give me leave to demand what right had they to say, we the people instead of we the states? States are the characteristics and the soul of a confederation. If the states be not the agents of this compact, it must be one great consolidated national government of the people of all the states. Had the delegates who were sent to Philadelphia a power to propose a consolidated government instead of a confederacy? Were they not de deputed by states and not by the people? The assent of the people in their collective capacity is not necessary to the formation of a federal government. The people have no right to enter into leagues, alliances, or confederations. They are not the proper agents for this purpose. States and sovereign powers are the only proper agents for this kind of government. Show me an instance where the people have exercised this business. Has it not always gone through the legislatures? This, therefore, ought to depend on the consent of the legislatures." End quote. Henry said emphatically of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, quote, The people give them no power to use their name, that they exceeded their powers perfectly clear, end quote. In modern terminology, this was a form of property infringement. He reminded his listeners of the nature of the original auth authorization of the convention, quote, The federal convention ought to have amended the old system. For this purpose, they were solely delegated. The object of their mission extended to no other consideration, end quote. But because the legislatures authorized the conventions, they in effect had sanctioned this public transfer of the locus of a sovereignty. This transfer was illegal. Divine right, closed universe. Henry could not overcome Americans' commitment to a new theology, the theology of the divine right of the invisible people. This theology had now replaced the divine right of kings and the divine right of parliament. There could ultimately be no appeal beyond the sovereign will of the voters. The people, as a collective unit, are best represented by the voters. The people, collectively, are originally sovereign, hence the voters are intermittently sovereign. Men can build in institutional safeguards against the misuse of this authority. The Constitution is full of them, but ultimately the voters are sovereign. The people speak through the voters. This is why the convention appealed to a plebiscite of voters state by state, not as they were legally represented in the established legislatures, but in statewide conventions. Many conventions modeled along the lines of the Philadelphia Convention and dominated by the same national political faction. The language of political philosophy in 1787 had made this appeal to the voters not only logical, but covenantally necessary. And being necessary, Mr. Madison did his organizational homework well in advance. He made sure that the Federalists would speak for the people. 
Let us not be naive. When we used to read of elections behind the Iron Curtain or elections yesterday in some African democracy, we are not surprised to learn that the existing national administration has been re-elected almost unanimously. We are not surprised because we know that the elections are rigged by those in power. We know it was not a representative procedure. Yet how many American history textbooks raise the obvious question? How did it happen that nine out of the first nine ratifying conventions voted to ratify, yet from that we can determine from the documentary record, the actual voting public was evenly split? The man who hated monolithic faction organized one whale of a monolithic faction in 1787. In 1800, he and Jefferson created a faction to deal with a faction that had split the faction that had ratified the Constitution. In 1812, his then-dominant fraction, faction got him elected president. He took America into a second war with Great Britain, thereby inducing the Federalist faction in New England to threaten to secede. The spirit of 76 lived on. This praise of the people had been prominent in Protestant political theory since at least the 16th century, but it had been offset by the Christian doctrine of the Creator God. He was seen as both the initiating authority and the final authority, Men had long debated over who held lawful claim to be God's final earthly authority, but there had been no doubt that this final earthly authority was under God. But in the early 18th century, this assumption steadily disappeared in the writings of the Commonwealth men, especially in the popular newspaper Cato's Letters. The language of divinity is applied to the people in this 1721 essay on libel. Quote, I have long thought that the world are very much mistaken in their idea and distinction of libels. It has been hitherto generally understood that there were no other libels but those against magistrates and those against private men. Now to me there seems to be a third sort of libels, full as destructive as any of the former can possibly be. I mean libels against the people. It was otherwise at Athens and Rome, where through particular men and even great men were often treated with much freedom and severity when they deserved it. Yet the people, the body of the people, were spoken of with the utmost regard and reverence. The sacred privileges of the people, the invaluable majesty of the people, the awful authority of the people, and the unappealable judgment of the people. End quote. Notice the final phrase, the unappealable judgment of the people. This is the essence of the divine right philosophy, a final unitary court of earthly appeal. But in this case, there is no heavenly court of transcendent appeal. This doctrine of the closed universe is the essence of humanism, as Rush Juni pointed out in 1967. Quote, Humanistic law, moreover, is inescapably totalitarian law. Humanism, as a logical development of evolutionary theory, holds fundamentally to a concept of an evolving universe. This is held to be an open universe, whereas biblical Christianity, because of its faith in the triune God and his eternal decree, is said to be a faith in a closed universe. This terminology not only intends to prejudice the case, it reverses reality. The universe of evolutionism and humanism is a closed universe. There is no law, no appeal, no higher order beyond and above the universe. Instead of an open window upwards, there is a closed cosmos. There is thus no ultimate law and decree beyond man and the universe. Man's law is therefore beyond criticism except by man. In practice, this means that the positive law of the state is absolute law. The state is the most powerful and most highly organized expression of humanistic man, and the state is the form and expression of humanistic law. Because there is no higher law of God as judge over the universe, over every human order, the law of the state is a closed system of law. There is no appeal beyond it. Man has no right, no realm of justice, no source of law beyond the state to which man can appeal against the state. 
Humanism, therefore, imprisons man with the closed world of the state and the closed universe of the evolutionary scheme. End quote. The Darwinian philosophy of law that has dominated the American legal theory since at least O.W. Holmes Jr.'s The Common Law in 1881 has been made judicially enforceable by the Constitution itself. Darwinian evolutionary thought is consistent with the preamble. It is naive, I am tempted to say terminally naive, to regard the modern evolutionary view of American constitutional law as being a deviation from the constitutional settlement, or on the contrary, it was guaranteed by that settlement. If we should appeal to the idea of the framers' original intent, we are driven straight into the world view of political Darwinism, a final earthly political court of appeal from which no heavenly appeal is judicially warranted. While perhaps not absolutely final, we can always call other constitutional convention, another constitutional convention, we the people. Madison set the precedent, and Madison was well organized years in advance. Judicial Sovereignty the Constitution's transfer of the locus of initiating sovereignty, and therefore final sovereignty to the people, has led to a special situation which was not foreseen by most of the framers, the United States Supreme Court's appropriation of nearly total judicial sovereignty. There is no effective, clear-cut check placed on the court's authority because this threat was not pursued perceived by most of the framers. Inevitably, the court's authority expanded, for it can declare the true law which governs all legislation. The framers believed that Congress would possess the greatest power because it would make the laws, but the biblical covenant model tells us that it is the person who interprets the law who is sovereign. The Constitution was written on the assumption that there is a higher law that is sovereign. This was a natural law theory version of biblical law, but it did govern the thinking of the framers and the Constitution reflects this belief. Thus, the Supreme Court has attained final judicial sovereignty, for it judges the legitimacy of the laws of Congress in terms of the higher law that the Constitution supposedly embodies, and voters are unwilling generally to overturn the court by constitutional amendment. The Supreme Court provides retroactive legitimacy to legislation, just as the voters in the ratifying conventions in 1788 provided retroactive legitimacy to the coup of 1787. Five unelected jurors for life, immune from the retroactive vengeance of voters, now speak finally in the name of the sovereign people. No wonder, in the words of Forrest MacDonald, regarding public opinion in 1787, that few American lawyers trusted a truly independent judiciary. Political conservatives cry out against the concentration of power in the hands of the Supreme Court. Such complaining does little good. Others have called the court's authority judicial tyranny. This also does little good. The court's power is still unchecked because of public opinion. The voters really do regard the Supreme Court as sacrosanct. Conservatives for a generation have appealed to the Constitution's explicit language and point to the obvious fact that the framers expected Congress to be the dominant branch. Such appeals are futile. They do no good. The court's authority is untouched by such appeals. What the framers may have expected or wanted here is judicially irrelevant. What is crucial is the hierarchical structure of the Constitution's underlying and fundamental principle of judicial declaration. The United States Constitution created a system of representation that passes to the Supreme Court the authority to legislate in the name of judicial interpretation. Legislation through Declaration the court is the legislator, for it declares the true law of the land, and voters perceive it as possessing the legitimacy to do this. Chief Justice John Marshall's doctrine of implied powers was a correct view of the Constitution. These powers are implied by the very structure of all co covenantalism. The, earth, the earthly judge who declares the true law and applies it to specific circumstances is the earthly sovereign. He who declares the unchanging moral law in individual cases, the causist, is the true lawmaker. So is he who declares the evolving amoral law. 
Chief Justice Berger had set forth this position, position clearly, quote, the cornerstone of our constitutional history and system remains the firm adherence of the Supreme Court to the Marbury principle of judicial review that someone must decide what the Constitution means, end quote. Cornerstone indeed. It was what John Marshall formally announced concerning the sovereignty of the Supreme Court, not what, not what the framers announced about it that has determined the history of civil government in the United States. That the court under Chief Justice Earl Warren produced what Professor Alexander Bickle called a web of subjectivity should surprise no one. This web of subjectivity is the inevitable product of a combining of two doctrines, the biblical doctrine of hierarchical representation and the Darwinian doctrine of the autonomy of man in a world of ceaseless flux. The mythical higher law of natural law theory was erased from modern man's thinking by Darwin, as Rush Dooney noted in 1969. This left the voice of the people in control. This voice in the United States is the latest pronouncements of the, pronouncement of a civil agency beyond which there is no judicial appeal, the Supreme Court. Part 2 of the Covenant Hierarchy is the second point of the Biblical Covenant model. It is the section that deals with representation. Some office, agency, or individual must represent the people before the throne of God and God before the people. In the church, this is the local pastor or elders. In Presbyterianism, it will be the General Assembly, or in some cases, the synods or presbyteries acting as a constitutional unit. But the agency, commission, or person with the authority to issue a binding judgment on disputed cases is the final earthly authority for that sphere of covenantal human government. In the U.S. government, this clearly is the Supreme Court. There is no escape from the principle of judicial authority. There must always be a final earthly court of appeal. It can, in theory, be plural voice. However, legislature, court, and executive combined are any two of them. In the 20th century, the U.S. Supreme Court became America's final court of appeal. Five justices speak for the invisible metaphysical people through the judicially flexible words of the Constitution. The framers did not recognize this possibility. They did not even bother to stipulate how many Supreme Court justices there should be. They did not understand point two of biblical covenantalism. Although the Constitution is structured in terms of the five-point biblical covenant model, with a different order, however, they should have seen the doctrine of judicial review was inevitable. Someone must speak definitively in the name of the sovereign people. The only way that they could have overcome this transfer of ultimate sovereignty to the Supreme Court would have been through the creation of some sort of institutional appeals structure beyond the authority of the court. If, for instance, the court's declaration that a law is unconstitutional would be constitutionally overturned by a vote of three-quarters of both houses of Congress plus the signature of the president, a truly federal system of checks and balances would now exist. Instead, the Constitution lodges theoretical judicial sovereignty in the people and final practical authority in the hands of five people, a five-to-four decision of the court. It is significant that this constitutional structure was the work of lawyers rather than common people. The Evolving Voice of Authority The fact is that there must always be a voice that interprets the will of the sovereign agent in history. Today, the amorphous deity, we the people, is represented in a sovereign way by five people. This was admitted casually and almost cynically by Chief Justice Berger in a televised interview by Bill Moyers. Here's the dialogue. Chief Justice Berger. Constitutional cases, constitutional jurisprudence, is open to the court to change change its position in view of changing conditions, and it has done so. Moyers. And what does it take for the court to reverse itself? Chief Justice Berger. Five votes. This is process philosophy, a view which has steadily gained control 
of American law ever since Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. announced its principles in the common law in 1881. His father, O.W. Holmes, Sr., was the author of the clever poem attacking the supposed fragility and rigidity of Calvinism, the deacon's masterpiece, or the wonderful one hoss shay. This is the process philosophy by the numbers. The people speak by way of five votes out of a maximum of nine. The court had had reversed itself in 219 cases by 2000. Of this total, all but seven instances came after the Civil War. All but 28 came after 1913. Over 60% came after 1941. This process is accelerating. Judicial discontinuity has begun to undermine the concept of the Constitution as fundamental law, as covenant. Legal scholars have all but abandoned such a view of the Constitution. Respect for the intentions of the framers, respect for the idea that the document's language is perpetually binding, and respect for the idea of binding judicial precedent are now all but gone. This loss of faith has undermined the very concept of constitutional legitimacy. But without faith, in legitimacy to undergird a legal system, self-government becomes anarchy, and the state asserts its will in the name of power alone. Like the Persian kings of old, whose word was law, but only as for as long as their power could enforce their word, so is the modern state when the public's confidence in its judicial legitimacy wanes in response to what Nathan Glazer has called the imperial judiciary. The doctrine of judicial review was the only available alternative to the idea of continuing plebiscites. Until the Civil War, the Supreme Court reigned but did not rule. It only asserted its authority to declare a congressional law unconstitutional twice. By 2000, it had overturned 151 congressional laws, plus 1,130 state laws. As its arrogance in Crete has increased and it's, it has attempted to rule, it has become the ever-changing plebiscite that the framers feared. But it is a plebiscite of, of a majority of nine rather than a majority of the voting public. The constitutionally unavoidable doctrine of the court's legitimate representation cannot survive the public's loss of faith in the existence of a stable, permanent, fundamental law which is being represented by the court. There must be continuity between the voice of fundamental law and the law itself over time. This continuity has been destroyed in, the th- in theory by Darwinism and, in fact, by the 20th century's political wars to control appointments to the court. The idea of legitimate earthly sovereignty of the court cannot be maintained once the public loses faith in the heavenly origin of the law. Hamilton, the consummate defender of centralism among the framers, argued in Federalist 78 that the Supreme Court would be the weakest of the three branches of the federal government. But he added, quote, Liberty can have nothing to do from the to fear. Liberty can have nothing to fear from the judiciary alone, but would have everything to fear from its union with either of the other departments, end quote. The rise of the executive branch's power in the 20th century, its control over appointments to the court, and the voluntary abandonment by Congress of its own authority combined to make the Supreme Court the threat to liberty that Hamilton admitted as an outside possibility. Yet had he been wiser, he would have seen what would come, and what John Marshall asserted as the court's prerogative as the voice of final authority. Hamilton wrote, quote, the interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the courts. A constitution is, in fact, and must be regarded by the judges as fundamental law. It therefore belongs to them to ascertain its meaning as well as the meaning of any particular act proceeding from the legislative body. If there should happen to be an irreconcilable variance between the two, that which has a superior obligation and validity ought, of course, to be preferred. Or, in other words, the constitution ought to be preferred to the statute, the intention of the people to the intention of their agents." End quote. 
This is sophistry. This superior obligation is not the Constitution, but the institutional authority that claims five to four to be the final voice of authority of the final sovereign but silent people. Who is to say what the, quote, intention of the people is, as distinguished from, quote, their agents? Are the justices of the court uniquely agents of the people appointed but not elected? Why is a statute any less authoritative as the expression of the will of, a, of, a, of the silent, invisible, sovereign people than a five-to-four decision of the court? A statute must pass both branches of Congress and be signed by the president, or else be passed by two-thirds of Congress if the president vetoes the proposed statute. Why is this procedure less representative of the people's will than a five-vote majority of the court? But it is, because the voters have been taught that the court possesses this sovereignty, i.e., this legitimacy. The Constitution established this final sovereignty, and Hamilton was either blind or a deceiver to argue that the Supreme Court would not become, step by step, the voice of authority. His own analysis pointed to the truth, Constitution over statute. The incorporation of legitimate, delegated earthly sovereignty was destroyed by the voters in 1788 when they ratified the Constitution with its denial of the legitimacy of a covenantal oath to the covenantal God who is alone the source of all law. Here is what is most significant covenantally about the Constitution, and therefore most significant overall. It abandoned the source of legitimacy, the Creator. The state constitutions on the whole were explicitly Christian. The Constitution was explicitly non-Christian. See Article 6, Clause 3 on official federal oaths. The language of natural law in the Declaration, the absence of any religious test oaths in the Articles, and the concept of the religiously neutral civil compact in the Constitution began the formal judicial break nationally with Christianity. The 14th Amendment completed it. Then came Darwinism. We can accurately date the advent of unbelief in the United States, 1865 through 1890. With the rabid philosophical erosion of the traditional 18th century worldview, the long-term covenantal basis of U.S. constitutional law was undermined. No one has described this process better than Thomas Woodrow Wilson, Ph.D., who in 1908 wrote this of the Constitution, quote, The government of the United States was constructed upon the Whig theory of political dynamics, which was a sort of unconscious copy of the Newtonian view of the universe. In our day, whenever we discuss the structure or development of anything, whether in nature or in society, we consciously or unconsciously follow Mr. Darwin, but before Mr. Darwin, they followed Newton. Some single law, like the law of gravitation, swung each system of thought and gave it its principle of unity." Once we accept this view of the Constitution, there are inescapable judicial implications. Wilson spelled them out forthrightly. Quote, the trouble with the theory is that government is not a machine, but a living thing. It falls not under the theory of the universe, but under the theory of organic life. It is accountable to Darwin, not to Newton. It is modified by its environment, necessitated by its tasks, shaped to its functions by the sheer, of, sheer pressure of life. No living thing can have its organs offset against each other as cheeks, checks, and live. On the contrary, its life is dependent upon their quick cooperation, their ready response to the commands of instinct or intelligence, their amicable community of purpose. Government is not a body of blind forces. It is a body of men with highly differentiated functions, no doubt, in our modern day of specialization, but with a common task and purpose. Their cooperation is indispensable, their warfare fatal. There can be no successful government without leadership or without the intimate, almost instinctive coordination of the organs of life and action. This is not theory, but fact, and displays its forces as fact, whatever theories may be thrown across its track. Living political constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice, end quote. 
Civil government in Darwin's world requires an active coordinator. The Constitution must be a living document, meaning a changing document, meaning actively changed by the voice of authority. What was suitable for a Constitution that has been interpreted in terms of a Newtonian worldview is no longer suitable. We have moved from mechanism to organism, from repairing to healing. The Anti-Federalists' Warning Patrick Henry was one of the few critics who sensed the danger. He warned that the implicit doctrine of judicial review would eventually lead to a conflict with, com with the common law principle of trial by jury. As mentioned earlier, Hamilton went so far as to say the judiciary is beyond compa comparison, the weakest of the three departments of power. End quote. And, he and he assured his readers that, quote, it can never attack with success either of the t other two, and that all possible care is requisite to it enable it to defend itself against their attacks, end quote. Hamilton was wrong. At least some of the anti-federalists saw what was coming. Professor Storing writes, quote, The weakening of the place of the jury, the provision for a complete system of national courts, the extensive jurisdiction of the national judiciary, the provision for appeal to the Supreme Court on questions of fact as well as law, and the supremacy of the Constitution and the laws and treaties made thereunder, all seem to give enormous power over the daily concerns of men to a small group of irresponsible judges, end quote. Storing then cites Brutus, whose anti-federalist writings he regards as the best regarding the ultimate authority of the federal judiciary under the proposed constitution. Brutus prophesied that the, quote, Supreme Court under his, this constitution would be exalted above all other power in the government and subject to no control, end quote. He forecasted clearly what subsequently has taken place, quote, the power of this court is in many cases superior to that of the legislature. I have shewed in a former paper that this court will be authorized to decide upon the meaning of the Constitution, and that not only according to the natural and obvious meaning of the words, but also according to the spirit and intention of it. In the exercise of this power, they will not be subordinate to, but above the legislature. For all the departments of this government will receive their power, so far as they are expressed in the Constitution, from the people immediately who are the source of power. The legislature can only exercise such powers as are given them by the Constitution. They cannot assume any of the rights annexed, annexed to the judicial, for this plain reason, that the same authority which vested the legislatures with their powers vested the judicial with theirs. Both are derived from the same source, both are equally valid, and the judicial hold their powers independently of the legislature, as the legislature do of the judicial. The Supreme Court then have a right, independent of the legislature, to give a construction to the Constitution in every part of it and there is no power provided in this system, to correct their construction or do it away. If, therefore, the legislature pass any laws inconsistent with the sense the judges put upon the Constitution, they will declare it void, and therefore, in this respect, their power is superior to that of the legislature. In England, the judges are not only subject to have their decisions set aside by the House of Lords for error, but in cases where they give an explanation to the laws or constitution of the country, contrary to the sense of the Parliament, Though the Parliament will not set aside the judgment of the court, yet they have authority by a new law to explain a former one, and by this means to, pre to prevent a reception of such decisions. But no such power is in the legislature. The judges are supreme, and no law explanatory of the Constitution will be binding on them. End quote. Today, only a handful of legal scholars still argue that both Congress and executive possess the authority to enforce and interpret the Constitution. The constitutional historians do not tell their students the truth, namely that John Marshall had to grab at historical straws in his attempt to find constitutional support for his conclusion that the Supreme Court alone was charged with the duty of interpreting the Constitution. He used the strange argument that the, that the judges take an oath to the Constitution. As Gordon Tulloch reminds us, the argument makes equal sense when applied to all other departments of the federal government. 
a final interpreter. Nevertheless, Marshall's position, while not grounded in the words of the Constitution, was fully grounded in covenantal reality. There must always be a final interpreter of the civil law, and by refusing to specify a judicial appeal system based on plural interpreters, for instance, three-quarters of both, both branches of Congress plus the President versus the Supreme Court, the framers implicitly accepted the notion of a unitary interpreter. There are no obvious constitutional checks and balances in this crucial task of civil government, the task of declaring valid law. The framers, by not specifying a means of appeal beyond the decisions of the Supreme Court, except for the involved system of the constitutional amendment, left no institutional basis for rejecting the court's position as a final voice of authority. Over time, the, Constitution, the Supreme Court gained sufficient legitimacy, legitimacy by default, to monopolize the sovereign power of judicial review, especially after the Civil War. Scholars properly regard as a constitutional aberration President Andrew Jackson's decision to ignore the Supreme Court's decision in Cherokee Nation versus Georgia and, War- and Worcester versus Georgia, which defended the Indians' tribal lands from encroachment by the state of Georgia. The president was not impeached for his decision, nor did anyone in Congress suggest that he should be. The fact remains that this is the only example in U.S. history of a peacetime president's successful public denial of the authority of the court. The authority of the court was established implicitly because of the structure of the biblical covenant, which the Constitution imitates. Fundamental Law The framers regarded the Constitution as fundamental law. This, Paul Eidelberg argues persuasively, is the foundation of the concept of judicial review. Article 6, Clause 2 states that this Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state to the contrary notwithstanding in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. But a fundamental need but a fundamental law needs a fundamental interpreter, a fundamental causist, and a final earthly court of appeal. Someone must speak representatively for the sovereign source of law. This is the U.S. Supreme Court. It was not intended to be so by the framers, but it has become so. Just as the Massachusetts Bay Colony General Court became the legislature, so has the modern Supreme Court become the legislature. The difference is Puritans in New England acknowledged the transformation and made this court elective. The constitutional... The Constitution is a covenant. Eidelberg correctly observes, quote, For this term denotes its juridical basis as a permanent law, end quote. If the people are the true source of law, as the Constitution states in the preamble, then there is only one alternative to the doctrine of judicial review, continual plebiscites. But decision-making by means of continual political plebiscites would eventually destroy the concept of permanence, which is the heart of a covenant. Too much political change, too much political passion, and too many shifting majorities will destroy the very idea of a covenant. The framers recognized this and sought ways to cool public passions. This concludes Eidelberg, the doctrine of judicial review, was implicit in the Constitution, whether the framers saw this or not. Appellate Jurisdiction The framers did insert a clause to limit the court's authority, but it has been used infrequently and is inherently not in agreement with the spirit of the Constitution, the ability of Congress to remove most issues from the court's jurisdiction. All Congress has to do is to pass a resolution removing the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. That would do it. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution reads as follows, quote, In all cases affecting ambassadors and other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all other cases before mentioned, uh, mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, 
both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. End quote. There is no mention of the president. Whether he must agree with Congress on this removal of the court's appellate jurisdiction has never been decided. An interesting question is, what if the court were to say that the president must agree with the Congress, but Congress disagrees? What if Congress should remove the jurisdiction of the court in this particular area of disagreement? Ex part McArdle. The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction only in cases where ambassadors and consuls are involved, or in cases in which states shall be a party. The Supreme Court has in the past acknowledged this long-neglected judicial, judicial fact. Consider the case of Ex parte McArdle, 1868. In the late 1860s, Congress imposed a military di dictatorship over the defeated South. During Reconstruction, a man was convicted in a military court of certain acts that were deemed by that court as obstructing Reconstruction. The Supreme Court decided to review the case. Here is the analysis of the case from the Library of Congress. Quote, Anticipating that the court might void or at least undermine Congressional Reconstruction of the Confederate States, Congress enacted over the President's veto a provision repealing the act which, author which authorized the appeal McArdle had taken. Although the court had already heard argument on the merits, it then dismissed for want to jurisdiction. We are not at liberty to inquire into the motives of the legislators. We can only examine into its power under the Constitution, and the power to make exceptions to the appellate jurisdiction of this court is given by express words." End quote. The President has been asked to sign the measure, but the text of the analysis does not say why. The Constitution surely does not mention any such requirement. Perhaps Congress submitted it to President Johnson out of spite. They knew his veto would be over, could be overridden. In any case, the court withdrew peacefully. It had no choice. The Constitution is clear, and previous cases had admitted such authority on the part of Congress. Initial Judicial Restraint Obviously, this is a very ticklish subject. Like the principles of judicial review, it was seldom invoked in the early days of the Republic. Judicial review is not a principle written into the Constitution. Chief Justice Marshall, John Marshall invoked it in the famous Marbury v. Madison case in 1803 when he declared an act of Congress unconstitutional. The only other time prior to the Civil War that the, that the court invoked it was in the Dred Scott v. Sanford case of 1857, which more or less guaranteed the Civil War. The court determined that Dred Scott was the property of a Southern owner, even though he had been taken into states that did not recognize the lawfulness of chattel slavery. He did not thereby become a citizen, so he could not sue in federal court, the Supreme Court declared. The court declared that Negroes could not be citizens of the U.S., although they could become state citizens. That decision was overruled at the cost of 620,000 dead. The 14th Amendment, 1868, was the result. Congress is no longer willing to remove the court's appellate jurisdiction over specific laws. This decrease in its assertion of authority has paralleled the increase of the court's willingness to declare laws unconstitutional. Congress has deferred authority to the Supreme Court. A power that was never announced by the Constitution, judicial review, has triumphed, and a power clearly announced by Congress's lawful control over the court's appellate jurisdiction has dropped from memory. The source of the court's power is the implied doctrine of judicial review, the idea that in law, as in politics, there must be this sign on someone's desk, the buck stops here. Again, citing former Chief Justice Berger, who has set forth this position clearly, the cornerstone of our constitutional history and system remains the firm adherence of the Supreme Court to the Marbury principle of judicial review, that someone must decide what the Constitution means. The Break with the Colonial Past Sociologist Robert Bella, in his provocatively titled book, The Broken Government, begins with a chapter entitled America's Myth of Origin. 
He speaks in the era of, era of revolution, from the Declaration to Washington's inauguration in 1789 in religious terms. Quote, we will want to consider the act of conscious meaning creation, of, con of conscious taking responsibility for oneself and one's society as a central aspect of America's myth of origin, an act, by, an act that, by the very radicalness of its beginning, ex nihilo, as it were, is redolent of the sacred, end quote. He refers to these acts as mythic gestures that stirred up images and symbols of earlier myths. The newness of America is one such myth. So was the wilderness theme. So is reform and rebirth. So is the promised land and the city on the hill. These are all biblical images, he said. The book is a collection of lectures del delivered at Hebrew Union College and the Jewish Institute of Religion. He recognizes the Augustinian, Calvinist, Puritan roots of the American experiment in freedom. The revolution appropriated these biblical themes by reworking them in a secular mold. We can see this clearly in a statement by James Madison toward the end of his life. He appropriated the post-millennial eschatology of John Winthrop, City on a Hill, in describing the position of America as the workshop of liberty. Quote, The free system of government we have established is so congenial with reason, with common sense, and with a universal feeling, that it must produce approbation and a desire of imitation, as avenues may be found for truth to the knowledge of our nations. Our country, if it does justice to itself, will be the workshop of liberty to the civilized world, and do more than any other for the uncivilized. End quote. This was nothing sort of messianic. It was also a false prophecy. No nation has ever successfully imported and applied our Constitution. At best, if you have imitated our economic policies, not our political structure. The men who consciously felt themselves to be founding fathers had a profound conviction of the solemnity of their role as lawgivers. John Adams wrote a long letter in April 1776 in which he said that he was grateful to have been, quote, been sent into a life at a time when the greatest lawgivers of antiquity would have wished to live, end quote. And at the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century, Americans had wavered about claiming to be a city set on a hill with the eyes of the world upon it. In 1787, the framers were certain once more. Anti-clerical moralism. Historians rarely discuss the relationship between the antinomianism and anti-clericalism of the Great Awakening and the pseudo-classism of the framers. The framers loudly professed moralism was conspicuously vague about details. In short, the moralism of the framers, like the moralism of the pastors inside the churches, was devoid of casuistry. The framers had substituted an undefined classical virtue for the Great Awakening's undefined Christian piety. Both views were self-consciously opposed to biblical law. The basis of the American civil religion was its abandonment of biblical covenantalism, one, the public announcement of the historic creeds of the church, two, and the pre-revolutionary requirement of civil magistrates to invoke Trinitarian oaths. 3. Christianity became instrumental to the preservation of the political order. It became an appendage of the state to the extent that it retained any civil function at all. The doctrine of the separation of church and state became, in practice, subordination of Christianity to the state. Despite the fact that the national government was prohibited by Article 6, Clause 3 from formally recognizing the civil government's dependence on Christianity, the churches have nevertheless been expected by the politicians to become unpaid cheerleaders for the Constitution and the judicially secular state. This the churches have dutifully done. There is no escape from the principle of the civil covenant. The churches have faithfully come to the altar of the empty pantheon to drop their pinches of rhetorical incense to the genius of the sovereign people. The covenant's law order had already been broken by Jonathan Edwards and his emphasis on emotionalism and sweetness. 
The framers worked out judicially what had been accepted morally, the irrelevance of biblical law for civil government. The shattered church covenants of the First Great Awakening, especially Presbyterianism, like the shattered civil covenants of New England that the First Great Awakening produced, could be restored only by an appeal to the newly emerging civil religion, a religion devoid of biblical law and Trinitarian oaths. For over a century, the Calvinists had talked about the law of God, but rarely the laws of God. They talked moralism, not covenantalism. They talked about the moral law of God, but not the civil law. They still do. The result was a crowd theology that did not offer spe specific judicial standards for societal transformation, but at the same time burdened men with guilt. It was a theology, as Joseph Haratunian had described it, of a, quote, a consistent and unlovable legalism, end quote. The Unitarian Revolt in the 1770s steadily replaced Calvinism in the thinking of intellectual and political leaders. Baptized Unitarianism had replaced pietistic Calvinism as an operational social ideal by this late 1780s. The heirs of the Commonwealthmen replaced the heirs of the Holy Commonwealthmen in the seats of authority. Thomas Pangle has emphasized the sharp covenantal break with the past made by the framers. He insists that, quote, there is a striking discontinuity as regards the underlying constitutional theory between the 17th century charters or compacts and the grounding documents of the revolution and the founding, end quote. We can see the difference in the covenanting documents. Quote, the Mayflower Compact, for example, does not suggest a social contract of independent and equal men consulting by consent their own sovereign and representative government for the purpose of the protection of their own liberties and property, end quote. The characterize, they characterize themselves as loyal subject of King James. Their purpose was twofold, the glory of God and the honor of king and country. The fundamental articles of New Haven in 1639 ask everyone to assent to the truth that, quote, the scriptures do hold forth a perfect rule for the direction and government of all men and all duties which they are to perform to God and men as well in the government of families and commonwealths as in matters of the church, end quote. After surveying several other early colonial laws, Pangle then states what should be obvious to any Christian historian and any secular historian who has studied the primary source of the two eras. Quote, These were the constitutional foundations of the first American civil societies, societies that compromised men who believed, comprised men who believed and rightly believed that they were liberating themselves from the oppressions and fanaticisms of the old world. This was the moral world, or the freest that the moral world can conceive of as, as being before the conception of Thomas Hobbes, Benedict Spinoza, and John Locke shattered its foundations. End quote. Shattered foundations. This is the covenantal legacy of the U.S. Constitution in the history of the American nation. It is time for Christians to stop living in the shadow of Whig and Unitarian historiography. It is time to admit the obvious. The conspiracy in Philadelphia was a success, and so was the revolution that followed in the ratifying conventions. The subsequent events proceeded as outlined by the Anti-Federalists, the centralization of power, the weakening of local juries, the Civil War, the 14th Amendment, and a Senate filled with atheists. Conclusion. The preamble of the Constitution and the plebiscite of 1788 established a new covenantal foundation for the American Republic. It transferred ultimate sovereignty from God to the people as a whole and mediatory political sovereignty from the states to the national government. The, the question then became, which branch speaks authoritatively in the, new, in the name of the new divinity? While the framers did not expect the Supreme Court to emerge as the people's spokesman, it was inherent in the nature of the constitutional settlement. One, the inescapable doctrine of judicial review. Two, a unitary reviewer, i.e. no provision for an appeal to the plural sovereignties of president and Congress. And three, tenure for good behavior for federal judges, continuity of the spoken word. 
The lawyers created a civil government made in their own image, and they transferred penultimate sovereignty to the lawyers. Lawyers, those sitting permanently on the Supreme Court until they die or voluntarily resign. Only the voters can overcome the court through the amending process, or so it has developed. There is no escape from judicial authority. There must always be a final earthly court of appeal. The framers did not fully recognize this. They should have seen that the constitutional doctrine of judicial review was inevitable. The only way that they could have overcome this transfer of ultimate sovereignty to the Supreme Court would have been the creation of some sort of appeal structure beyond the court, such as my three-quarters vote suggestion. Instead, the Constitution lodges theoretical judicial authority in the people and final practical authority in the hands of five people, a five-to-four decision of the court. The fact is, there must always be a voice that interprets the will of the sovereign agent in history. Today, the amorphous deity, quote, we the people, is represented in a sovereign way by five people. A constitutional amendment can override the court, as can a new convention, but these alterations are costly to organize and infrequent. The court not only reigns today, it also rules. The remarkable fact is that this development was foreseen clearly by Brutus. Analyzing the preamble, he recognized that the centralization of political power was inevitable. Quote, To discover the spirit of the Constitution, it is of first importance to attend to the principal ends and designs it has in view. These are expressed in the preamble and in the following words, viz. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution. And if the end of the government is to be learned from these words, which are clearly designed to, to declare it, it is obvious that it has in view every object which is embraced by any government. The preservation of eternal peace, the due administration of justice, and to provide for the defense of the community seems to include all the objects of government. But if they do not, they are certainly comprehended in the words to provide for the general welfare. If it, further, if it be further considered that this constitution, if it is ratified, will not be a compact entered into by states in their corporate capacities, but an agreement of the people of the United States as one great body politic, no doubt can remain, but that the great end of the constitution, if it is to be collected from the preamble in which its end is declared, is to constitute a government which is to extend to every case for which any government is instituted, whether external or internal. The courts, therefore, will establish this as a principle in expounding the Constitution, and will give every part of it such an explanation as will give it latitude to every department under it, to take cognizance of every matter. Not only that, effect, not only that affects the general and national concerns of the Union, but also of, such, also of such as relate to the administration of private justice and to regulating the internal and local affairs of the different parts. Such a rule of exposition is not only consistent with the general spirit of the preamble, but it, will also, but it will stand confirmed by considering more minutely the different clauses of it, end quote. This means of centralization, he predicted, would be the Supreme Court's power of judicial review. Quote, Perhaps nothing could have been better conceived to facilitate the abolition of the state governments than the constitution of the judicial. They will be able to extend the limits of the general government gradually and by insensible degrees and to accommodate themselves to the temper of the people. Their decisions on the meaning of the Constitution will commonly take place in cases which arise between individuals with which the public will not be generally acquainted. One adjudication will form a precedent to the next, and this is to a following one. These cases will immediately affect individuals only, so that in a series of determinations will probably take place uh, before even the people will be informed of them. In the meantime, all the art and address of those who wish for the change will be employed to make converts to their opinion. 
Had the construction of the Constitution been left with the legislature, they would have explained it at their peril if they exceeded their powers or sought to find in the spirit of the Constitution more than was expressed in the letter. The people from whom they derived their power could remove them and do themselves right. And indeed, I can see no other remedy that the people can have against their rulers for encroachments of this nature. A Constitution is a compact of a people with their rulers. If the rulers break the compact, the people have a right and ought to remove them and do themselves justice. But in order to enable them to do this with greater facility, those whom the people choose at standard periods should have the power in the last resort to deem the sense of the compact, determine the sense of the compact. If they determine the contrary to the understanding of the people, an appeal will lie to the people at the period when the rules are to be elected, and they will have it in their power to remedy the evil. But when this power is lodged in the hands of men independent of the people and of the representatives and who are not constitutionally accountable for their opinions, no way is left to control them but with a high hand and an outstretched arm. End quote. In the history of political forecasting, let alone prophecy, few analysts rival Brutus for both his accuracy and rhetorical skill. His warning was ignored in 1788. Americans paid a, paid a heavy price after 1857. Dred Scott, they have continued to pray, pay ever since 1868 the 14th Amendment. Quote by James Madison, 1830. Should the provisions of the Constitution, as here reviewed, be found not to secure the government and rights of the states against the usurpation and, and usurpations and abuses on the part of the U.S., the final resort within the purview of the Constitution lies in, the, in an amendment of the Constitution according to the process applicable by the states. And in the event of a failure of every constitutional resort and an accumulation of usurpations and abuses, rendering passive obedience and non-resistance a greater evil than resistance and revolution, there can be but one resort, the last of all, an appeal from the canceled obligations of the constitutional compact to original rights and the law of self-preservation. This is the ultima ratio under all government, whether consolidated, confederated, or a compound of both. And it cannot be doubted that a single member of the union in the extremity supposed, but in that only, would have a right as an extra and ultra-constitutional right to make that appeal, end quote. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.